recorded live. Someday I'll remember to turn that off before I start a program. I'm sorry. It cycles around automatically. It never used to do that. It was a new version, and, and the behavior of the program changed with the new version. So I haven't had a chance to dig into it and stop it from doing that. Well, well Euripides, Hippolytus, Hippo, I'm sorry, Euripides, the great tragic poet of ancient Athens. Hippolytus, line six, 962 and 963. The bastard is always regarded as an enemy to the true born. It, it's absolutely incredible to me how, how many people that claim to be Christian identity do nothing but troll and harass other identity Christians. It's, it, it, it should be evident to everybody that knows the the, the function of the ADL and the Jewish Internet Defense League and, and other such organizations, Operation COINTELPRO, that the government claimed was discontinued, but it's never been discontinued, that it was always their purpose to infiltrate any opposition groups, political opposition that, that, that put up a, a formidable and, and um, threatening political opposition to, to the Zionist, Zionist agenda, to world Zionism, that they would infiltrate those groups and subvert them, and we should not be surprised that that happens in Christianity. And, and we have a long list of clowns that are supposedly Christian identity pastors and all they do is harass other identity Christians. They don't do any real work. That they, they don't get out and, and even harass the enemies of Christ. They only harass other identity Christians. And I'm not going to name any names this evening. I, I might tomorrow. But, but everybody that, that um, listens to my podcast should know who they are, that this is ever since that I've... Um, through Feedline series, I've gotten much opposition from these same people. And the reason why they're angry, above all other reasons, the primary reason why they're angry is the race issue, because they're being exposed as universalists. They're being exposed as the clowns that they are because they're not standing firm on the race issue. And that's the, the number one reason for the problems that all of these all of all of these so-called Christian identity pastors have with our ministry at Christagenia, and I'll leave that at, at, at that. And and this next issue that we're going to discuss in the letters of Paul in in the Epistle to Romans, this is um, what one of the key issues to understanding Scripture correctly. It is the divinity of Christ and the fact that Yahweh our God views Israel as a nation as his bride, as his wife. And that relationship is inviolable to the point where God himself would come as a man and die to maintain his relationship with the children of Israel. We are going to... um, see that tonight from scripture and 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 that's what paul of tarsus is actually explaining here in romans chapter 7 tonight we're going to commence romans chapter 7 it's part 8 of our roman series today is friday may 23rd 2014 praise yahweh and thank you for listening the bible itself tells us that it is the book of the race of the adamic man in Genesis chapter 5. I know in the King James Version it says generations, but multiple generations of, of, of one species are indeed a race. Very little is given of what is at least, according to the Septuagint chronology, a 2,200-year history from the creation of Adam to the flood of Noah. We have just a, a, a couple of short Bible chapters and not much explaining and, and historiography at all. 
Then we have, after the flood of Noah, a table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And these Adamic descendants of Noah are the white nations of ancient history. They are all identifiable as such in scripture and in archaeology and classical history, in spite of the fact that they who are also listed that, that are set apart as being accursed and as being race mixers, fornicators, and sodomites later in scripture. With the establishment of these nations, there are, by an approximation taken once again from the Septuagint, over 1,500 the event which is commonly known as the call of Abraham. None of the history of this 1,500 years is recorded in Scripture. While very little of it is known from history or, history or archaeology, from the, from the records found on clay tablets and other inscriptions which have been dug out of the ground in Mesopotamia and, and its environs, we can indeed tell the accuracy of what Scripture does provide us. Scripture records... But during these first 3,700 years, Yahweh God made promises to our entire race, such as those which are recorded in Genesis chapters 3 and chapter 9. And those promises have never been revoked. They weren't replaced by the later covenants. They were only augmented by later covenants. The promises of God are, as Paul says in Galatians, irrevocable. God does not change his mind. However, very little of nearly 4,000 years of Adamic history before the birth of Jacob are mentioned at all. From the time of the call of Abraham, even though there was a much greater world, white world, and, and, and race mixing already, and, and all kinds of things going on around Abraham, from the time of the call of Abraham, the entire scripture has been focused upon one man's family and the promises to Abraham which were transmitted to his offspring through Jacob Israel. From that time, the other white Adamic nations are only mentioned where they come into contact with Israel. Wherever non-Adamic peoples, it is only in relation to something wicked or to some plague or to some curse. Since the time of the apparent fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that his seed would become many nations, all of the ancient Adamic Genesis 10 nations have been eclipsed. Yahweh either gave them up to his enemies, as he stated of Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba, for example, or he has destroyed them for his own transgressions, as he stated of the Philistines, of Assyria, and of Babylon, for examples or they were apparently absorbed into the body of the children of Israel in Europe in fulfillment of other prophecies, such as those concerning Japheth in Genesis chapter 9. For this reason, that all of the other Adamic nations were given up by God, was Abraham promised that his seed would inherit the earth. By this, Yahweh had demonstrated his sovereignty to our race in antiquity. But we can only see that if we first recognize the facts of history. Out of all of the ancient Adamic nations, Yahweh purposely chose a man from a nation which was not at all powerful in antiquity. For while the names of many of the other nations of the Genesis 10 patriarchs are indeed well known from history and archaeology, having become notable nations at an early time, the names of Arphaxad and Eber, from which Abraham came, are only known to us because of the biblical accounts and the impression that the Hebrews left on history after the call of Abraham. Great nations fell by the way for the sake of Abraham's seed. Paul of Tarsus understood ancient history, and therefore Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 27, but Yahweh has chosen the foolish of the society in order that he disgrace the cunning 
And Yahweh has chosen the feeble of the society, that he disgraced the strong, and the lowborn of the society, and the despised. Yahweh has chosen those that are not, in order that he may annul those that are, so that not any flesh shall boast in the presence of Yahweh. This accords with the words of Yahweh to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where he said, Yahweh did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, and, and we'll end our quote there, this is basically the same message to the same people. The reference to those that are not in 1 Corinthians is, the, is a reference to the nations of Abraham's seed, which did not exist. Paul said, Yahweh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Yahweh chose those that are not in order that he may annul those that are. In Romans chapter 4, Paul said that Yahweh chose, or, or, or well, he chose Abraham's seed, and that he calls things not existing as existing. He's saying the same thing that he said in 1 Corinthians, where he says that Yahweh chose those that are not in order to annul those that are. He's saying the same thing in Romans chapter 4 as he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's just saying it in a different way. And the reference to those that are describes all of those ancient Adamic Genesis 10 nations, which today no longer exist. Those that are not, or the reference to those in, in Romans whom Yahweh calls things not existing as existing, they're a reference to the seed of Abraham and the nations that came from Abraham and from Israel who would eventually replace the ancient white Genesis 10 nations, which have today all fallen by the wayside. None of them really exist anymore in their original form. Yeah, sure, we still have a place called Egypt, we still have a place called Ethiopia, but they're not the original Egyptians. They're not the original Ethiopians. We still have Greeks that claim to be Ionians, but they're not really Ionian Greeks. Therefore, it can be established that the word salvation is a multidimensional concept as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, the promises of Christ certainly did come to those nations which descended from Abraham's seed. The promises that Israel would be saved or preserved out of Yahweh's judgment of the old Adamic world are kept in the white Christian nations of today. However, the eternal Adamic soul and the promises that the Adamic man would have eternal life so long as he grasped onto the tree of life are distinct. They are distinct from the promises of earthly salvation to Israel. This we have already presented here when Paul himself had explained it in Romans chapter 5. The Adamic man was created by God to be eternal, and he is. With the advent of modern history and the dawn of the white world, which is now extant, the old Adamic world was consumed. That consumption is evident in the words of the prophets, where it was also said many times that Israel would be preserved. No other white nation had that promise, and today none of them recognizably exist. The white nations which are left today are indeed descended from Abraham's seed through Jacob. The children of Jacob are characterized collectively in Scripture as the bride of Yahweh. The nations of Israel, and therefore of true Christendom, are collectively the wife of Yahweh our God.
The mainstream denominations following the Roman Catholics want to replace Israel the Bride with some multicultural, non-national church organization. Of course, now there are many such churches, so they must compete with one another. However, the Israel of God in the New Testament is still recognized as 12 tribes by Christ in Matthew chapter 19, Luke 22, Revelation chapter 7 and 21. Still recognized as 12 tribes by Paul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 26. Still recognized as tribes by the Apostle James in his epistle in chapter 1. So the denominational churches are clearly fraudulent. They can't steal the identity of Israel because the children of Israel are still 12 tribes. However, what is worse is that there are so-called Christian identity pastors who are really clowns playing at circus who now completely deny the literal concept of Israel as the bride of Yahweh. They attempt to diminish the meaning of the relationship by insisting that it is merely allegorical in spite of the many plainly literal statements by which Yahweh himself defines the relationship. With this, they really have another agenda. If they can convince us that the marriage relationship of Yahweh to Israel is not real, as if God doesn't define the language, they try to define the language for God instead, if they can convince us that the marriage relationship is not real, then they can claim in turn that Yahweh is not bound to treat Israel according to his law, and that Yahweh himself did not have to die in order to release Israel from the law. With this agenda, they would really have a hard time explaining from Scripture exactly why Christ had to die on behalf of the sins of the children of Israel, or more importantly, how Christ could possibly die on account of their sins. The following passage is from Ezekiel chapter 18. And it concerns the children of Israel and their relationship to Yahweh while in the captivity. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. It shall die. The soul that sins, and I'm going to skip to Ezekiel 18:20. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So with that, yet in Isaiah chapter 53, we are told that Yahweh would lay the iniquity of all Israel on one man. How could this be if every man was to die for his own iniquity, according to Ezekiel? How could one man then die for the iniquity of all Israel? How could the death of one man propitiate sin for an entire people before their God? We had already been told in Isaiah chapter 9 that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That same child, who was indeed the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father, was also the Lamb of God, as it was attested of him by John the Baptist. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 36. The only rational way to understand how one man could die on behalf of all the sins of the children of Israel, and even those who still sin, as the Apostle John also explained that if we sin, we have an intercessor, is that if one man, if that one man is indeed the mighty God, who came as a man to die in order to release Israel from the law, Israel, the bride of Yahweh, would be released from the law upon the death of the husband. Yahweh God takes his law seriously, and this signifies the extent to which he goes to keep his law and to show his love for his people Israel. 
that he himself would die to fulfill his own law and at the same time demonstrate his love for his people. Those who question Yahweh's marriage relationship with Israel certainly do not take seriously either Yahweh God, his law, or anything from the Bible. With their claims, they prove themselves to be no better than Jewish interlopers, whose nature has always been to contend with Scripture rather than to learn from and accept Scripture. Here in Romans chapter 7, the words of Paul of Tarsus directly contradict their claims. Romans 7, verse 1. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over a man for as long a time as he should live. There is something which our ancestors took for granted, which is evident in many contexts in Scripture, but it's never really spelled out explicitly. And that is the belief that their words had the power to bind their descendants as well as themselves to an agreement or to an oath. That is the reason why the patriarchs blessed their children and recorded those blessings and the reason why the children took those blessings seriously. That is also an underlying concept of the word heritage. And each of us represents a part of the heritage of our ancestors. On many occasions, Terms such as throughout your generations or in your generations forever appear in Scripture. The appearance of those words reveals that the belief that we could be bound by our ancestors also came from our God. Paul, referring to the law, was therefore correct in stating that the law bound a man for as long as he lives, if indeed that man was born unto and circumcised in the law. We are bound to our God by the nature of our birth. But according to scripture, Yahweh God only bound those who are of the children of Israel. That's the entire focus. We can't go outside that. Honoring one's parents. I said a few weeks ago it was the second commandment. I wasn't wrong. I just didn't explain my concept. Honoring one's parents is the second Concepts found in the Ten Commandments of God. The first few commandments are all meant in order that we honor God himself. By keeping our heritage, we honor our parents. By forsaking our race, we forsake our God and dishonor our parents. The laws of our God forbid us from forsaking our race and assure us that if we honor our parents, we shall be blessed. Of course, the Ten Commandments are enumerated in several different ways. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou hast long life upon the earth. <coughs> That's sometimes listed as third, sometimes fourth, sometimes fifth. Basically, the first several commandments have to do with honoring God. And the first one that doesn't have to do with honoring God has to do with honoring our parents, so it's the second concept found in the Ten Commandments. That's the way I look at them. Speaking of the descendants, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Speaking of the descendants of the children of Israel, while the agreement that our ancestors made with God at Mount Sinai, which is recorded from Exodus chapter 19, had bound us to the law, <clears throat> Christ set us free from that law. Chapter 5, Paul had stated that, in the freedom in which Christ has set us free, you stand fast indeed. Do not be again entangled in a yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you should be circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again that every man getting himself circumcised, that he is obligated to do the entire law. Ezekiel 33.13 helps to explain Paul's statement about circumcision and the law in Galatians 5.3. And the word of God says, When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trusts to his own righteousness 
and commits iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die for it. As Paul said in Romans chapter 5, through one decision of judgment on the part of Christ, the entire Adamic race was considered righteous. He has deemed us righteous, but not of ourselves or our own doing. Foreseeing this, Yahweh said in Ezekiel that a man should not trust in his own righteousness. Therefore, turning to the law for our righteousness and the things that we think that we do, if we fail, we are liable to the whole law, as Paul states in Galatians 5.3. If you think you're going to be righteous for getting yourself circumcised, you're obligated to the entire law. As the Apostle James also explained in his one epistle in James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offended one point, he is guilty of all. So when we sin, we can't turn to our own righteousness. We have to turn to our God for mercy. That's why the Apostle John explains in his first epistle that if we sin and we profess our sin, that our God is just and merciful and he will forgive our sin. We profess our sin That includes repenting from it, right? Romans chapter 7, verse 2. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. Now that word married is basically literally under or subject to a man. Israel was a nation married to Yahweh and therefore subject to his law for as long as he lives or for as long as the wife lives. The wife being the nation. Because the house of Israel was married to Yahweh, it was also called the house of God by Peter, by Paul. We have long upheld the patriarchal tradition amongst the various nations of our race, whereby a man is considered the king of his own house. Here we shall read from Hebrews chapter 3, from the King James Version, from verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. And there by all his house, Paul means the house of Yahweh God. The temple wasn't built yet. The house of God, they are the people of Israel. For this man was accounted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as, watch the analogy here, it's important, inasmuch as he who has built the house has more honor than the house. And Paul was saying that Christ is Yahweh, the builder of the house, whereas Moses was only a part of the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And therefore, Paul tells us indirectly that Christ is God. That's the only way that Christ could be the builder of the house. And Paul is telling us in verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 3 that Christ is the builder of the house. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, Israel is the house of God. Christ is the builder, and Christ is a son, and it is his house. He's a son over his own house. Therefore, Christ must be God. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. This chapters 19 and 24, there should be little doubt that the record here is that of a marriage agreement between Yahweh and the children of Israel. The nation would be the bride of God, and the law was given to Israel as the terms of that marriage. The children of Israel where all 12 tribes are present, are represented as having fully agreed to this arrangement. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 19, from verse 5. 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which Yahweh commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. It was traditional for the bride to be washed the night before a wedding and be ready against the third come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai now for the next several chapters of the Exodus laws are given which Israel must follow as their part in this agreement this is the first prenuptial agreement in recorded history then in Exodus chapter 4 we read this from verse 3 And Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has said we will do. Judge. The judge would say, Do you promise to love, honor, and obey? And the bride would say, I do. And Moses wrote all the words of Yahweh and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has made with you concerning all these words. Understanding that Israel is the house of God and that the nation itself is the wife of God, we can understand what Paul explains next in Romans chapter 7, verse 3. So then, as the husband is living, she, meaning the wife, would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Paul is talking about the law of marriage here apart from the possibility of divorce, which really need not be considered for the purpose of his illustration. However, because of the naysayers, we shall indeed discuss it at length. Two steps to a proper divorce under the law of God. Here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is separated out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the later husband hates her, and writes her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the later husband die, which took her to be his wife. And we'll stop that reading here. It must also be noted that there is no requirement to await for a third party approval in this process. Yahweh is God and not the governments of man. Because of the use of certain terms in modern English, Many scoffers claim that to be put away is somehow different than being divorced. If that claim stands, or if that claim is to stand, then there must be two different verbs in both Hebrew and Greek, one which describes the act of being put away or of putting away, and one which describes the act of divorce or of being divorced. Yet in either biblical language, there are no such verbs describing the act of divorce, which distinguishes that act from the act of putting away. 
The Hebrew and Greek verbs translated as put or putting away represent the only verbs which describe the act of divorce. They're the same. The word translated as bill of divorcement is a noun. It only describes the piece of paper which records the act of putting away. But the act of putting away is indeed the act of divorce. There's a lengthy paper explaining this at Christogenia entitled Divorce in the Bible. Do not judge what biblical divorce is by the laws of modern man, because we today have made the process much more complicated than the one described in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In the ancient world, women did not have the same property rights and child custody rights as they have today. And our divorce process is much more complicated primarily for that reason. In the ancient world, a woman put out of the house by her husband had no recourse whatsoever, and the force of the husband was all that he needed to prevail. But the laws of Yahweh in Deuteronomy in chapter 24 describe a simple two-step process, and that is all he requires. However, even that was designed to protect women in some degree. Not having any property rights. A woman put out of her house, put out of the house of her husband, would be forced to prostitution or perhaps even starved to death because no other man could take her in. If another man took her in, he risked being labeled an adulterer by the first husband, and then both the other man and the woman could be stoned. A spiteful husband may be tempted to perform such an evil deed if he found that his divorced wife was given refuge in the home of a neighbor or that she had found another husband. But if the woman possessed a bill of divorcement written by the first husband, it would be safe under the law for another man to take that woman into his house, whether out of pity or as a wife, it would be safe under the law because the first husband issued a piece of paper recognizing the divorce. He couldn't execute judgment against them if they were found together. That's the, the, the law of divorce in Deuteronomy. As an aside, when Israel was put away by Yahweh, it was also without any property. All the property of Israel was seized by the Assyrians and Babylonians, who acted as Yahweh's warriors, evidently. The children of Israel were indeed put away by Yahweh. They were put away for reason of fornication and idolatry, and they had already joined themselves to other gods. At the first, at the first, they had no bill of divorcement to prove that they were put away. So even their idols and the aliens they joined themselves to were liable to death under Yahweh's laws. From Isaiah chapter 50, thus saith Yahweh, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? In other words, that's a rhetorical question. They couldn't come up with it. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So the, bill, the, the divorce is acknowledged, but Israel did not have the required bill of divorcement when she was found with other gods, so Israel remained liable to the death penalty. Only 120 years or so later does Yahweh record having given Israel a bill of divorcement in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. Yahweh said also unto me in the days of Hosea the king, Thou hast seen that which backsliding Israel has done. She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it, and I saw when for all the causes, whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. The remnant of Judah would also later be divorced. The prophecy of Hosea is, for the most part, the story of Yahweh's divorce of Israel. While most of Judah was taken away with Israel, there was at that time a remnant upon which Yahweh had mercy. Yet about 140 or so years later, after Hosea, 
Yahweh indeed put away Judah as well. Therefore, in Jeremiah chapter 33, we have confirmation that both Israel and Judah were put away by Yahweh in verse 23, where it says, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people has spoken, saying, The two families which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, that they should be no more a nation before them. Thus saith Yahweh, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. Here we have a promise of mercy to Israel and Judah in spite of the fact that they were both put away or divorced by Yahweh their God. This interpretation of Jeremiah is corroborated in Ezekiel, who is his contemporary, where he wrote of Judah in Ezekiel chapter 23, from verse 18, so she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. Then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister. In Breton's Septuagint, the same passage reads, and she exposed her fornication and exposed her shame. And my soul was alienated from her, even as my soul was alienated from her sister. That Greek word translated as alienated in this passage is the verb aphistami, the same word of which the noun apostasion is translated all throughout the book as divorce. Judah was indeed divorced by Yahweh as well as Israel. Once the children of Israel adopted the customs of the surrounding Canaanite nations, broke the law, began practicing paganism, and began mixing their race, which is indeed a practice originating in paganism and a part of the fertility rituals of the ancient pagan temples, those people were found to be adulterers by Yahweh. The entire nation of Israel was found to be adulterers by Yahweh, who was the husband of the nation. Here's what the law says of adulterers, Leviticus 20.10. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22. And if a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shall thou put evil away from Israel. Israel, the wife, had committed a crime worthy of death. In their entirety, and without exception, Israel, as a nation, deserved to die. Yahweh divorced Israel out of his mercy for them to forestall the judgments of his law. Therefore, in relation to the promise of a new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31, Yahweh guaranteed that Israel would always be a nation. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant I was a husband unto them, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall no more teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, No Yahweh. For they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus saith Yahweh, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So Israel's going to be a nation as long as we have a sun, moon, and stars. 
Thus saith Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done. And heaven, of course, can't be measured. The universe cannot be measured in spite of the Jews. Here I must, take, here I must make another parenthetical statement. For all of the geniuses who insist that Judah was not divorced, if there was a new covenant to be made with Israel and Judah because they broke the old covenant, even though Yahweh was a husband to them, and Judah was not divorced, why is there a need for a new covenant with Judah as well as Israel? If Judah was not divorced, Judah would still be under the old covenant in the law. The people that claim that Judah was not divorced, that claim came out of British Israel, and, and the British Israel, I, I can't call them scholars. The British Israel people insist that the Jews are Judah, and they, they imagine that the Jews are absolutely fantasy. They came up with the harebrained idea that Judah was never divorced. Scripture certainly indicates that Judah was divorced. All of the arguments against Judas being divorced are sophistry. While all Israel deserved death under the law, we see that Yahweh promised that Israel would certainly not die, but rather would be a nation forever. There is only one way that this could be done without Yahweh himself being labeled a hypocrite for breaking his own law. He himself had to die in order to free Israel from the law. Christ professed that he came to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That word translated fulfill is the Greek word plero. Strong's number 4137. And according to Liddell and Scott, it means to make full or to complete. This is what Paul explains here in Romans chapter 7, where Paul himself tells us that the husband, Yahweh, had to die from the law. Let us repeat Romans 7 from verse 3. So then, as the husband is living, she, the wife, would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Yahweh did not have to divorce Israel. He could instead have executed the judgments of the law and done away with Israel completely as he already had with all of the other Adamic Genesis 10 nations. However, on account of his word, and the promises made to the fathers, Israel would live. But there was a law which barred Israel's reconciliation to Yahweh, even though Israel was divorced. For that reason, we must revisit the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 concerning divorce, and here we shall read it at greater length. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the later husband hates her, and writes her a bill of divorce, and gives it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the later husband dies, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. Thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy God gave thee for an inheritance. So the law precluded Yahweh from taking Israel back because she was found with other men. Israel could not again be the wife of Yahweh. It was said of a newly divorced Israel in Hosea, she would return to Yahweh exclaiming, 
I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. Even if Israel disregards the laws of God, Yahweh does not disregard his own law. This, for us, is a sign of his forbearance and his patience, that he would come as a man and die on behalf of his people so that he could keep the promises he made to the fathers and be reconciled to Israel once again, while at the same time fulfilling the letter of the law, satisfying the letter of the law. For this reason, Christ is sound saying in Luke chapter 16 that the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached and every man presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Yahweh did not put Israel away so that he could remarry any other people. And with this understanding, the concepts of universalism and replacement theology are completely disintegrated. The words of Christ in Luke 16 also corroborate Paul's statements in Romans chapter 7. They serve as a second witness and our interpretation of it. Because neither is Christ, if you examine Luke 16, neither is Christ interrupting his own train of thought to offer a sermon on domestic relations. He's not giving these people a sermon on domestic relations. He's referencing the marriage relationship of Yahweh and Israel. That's what he's doing in Luke 16. These people are trying to squeeze themselves into the kingdom of God, and Christ is saying that he's not going to remarry another. Meaning those people trying to squeeze themselves into the kingdom of God. That same Yahshua Christ said in another place, which we see in Matthew chapter 19, that Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, shall, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her which is put away, commits adultery. Therefore, Yahweh divorced Israel justly, since it was for reason of fornication. Yet from the beginning, it was not so that a man should divorce his wife. Therefore, we see that divorce is a feature of God's permissive will, because men are weak, and it was allowed in the Mosaic law. But divorce is not a feature of God's divine will. And the prophet said in Malachi, Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, saith, He that hateth putting away. Yahweh, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Yahweh, God, hates divorce, even though he himself divorced Israel. Divine will, permissive will. Men are weak. God keeps his law. He is not weak like men. Yahweh put away Israel, but as Christ exclaims in Luke chapter 16, he would not marry another. He said this in the context of an answer to the Pharisees, whom he was upbraiding for justifying themselves before men. He prefaced this with the statement, that the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it because many of those Pharisees were not Israelites and only God. However, in order to satisfy the law which governed the relationship of Yahweh and Israel, Yahweh's law, he governs himself by it and yet maintain his exclusive marriage relationship with Israel, he had to die thereby freeing Israel and himself from a law 
which prevented reconciliation and which was nullified upon his death. In that manner, not one jot or tittle of the law would fail. Doing so, the marriage, divorce, and remarriage stipulations of Deuteronomy prevented him from reconciling Israel, and Israel would no longer be under the liability of the death penalty for her initial adultery and fornication. Verse 4. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. After announcing his divorce of Israel, speaking of a future time, the word of Yahweh says in Hosea chapter 2, and it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shall no more call me Bali. Ishi meaning my husband, and Bali meaning my Lord. For I will take the names of Balim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And on to verse 19. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment, and in loving kindness and in mercies, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Hosea proves that in their reconciliation, Israel is returning to Yahweh the husband, which can only be in Christ. That is what the wedding supper of the Lamb in the Revelation is all about. That is why John the Baptist referred to Christ as the bridegroom. That is why Christ referred to himself as the bridegroom. For these same reasons, Paul said to the Corinthians, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The return of Israel to Christ is an espousal or a betrothal. The gospel is an announcement of that betrothal intended only for the children of Israel. The new covenant and the wedding supper are not consummated until the second advent, his final return, which is described in Revelation chapter 19. Paul explains here in Romans that if the husband should die, the wife can marry another without worry. Yahweh died in Christ, being, Yahweh died in Christ freeing Israel from the law. But it must be said that Yahweh, being God, has the power to lay down his life, thereby fulfilling the law, and then take it up again, as Christ asserted that he would do in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, does my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. These words help to elucidate the fact that he died and was resurrected so that he could keep Israel in spite of Israel's sin, while at the same time keeping the letter of the law, fulfilling the law. In Daniel chapter 9, we see in, in, in part, in Daniel chapter 9, we see the explicitly stated purpose of the Messiah, where it states in verse 24, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Yet the children of Israel did not stop sinning at the cross of Christ, to make an end of sins. That's what Daniel 9 says. If that means that everybody stops sinning, then God is a failure. But that's not what it means. 
the children of Israel did not stop sinning at the cross of Christ. So how did the Messiah make an end of sins? The Apostle John said in chapter 2 of his first epistle that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And in chapter 3 of that same epistle, he said, whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Yet if any man sins, he has an advocate in Christ. This is only reconciled with the knowledge of what Paul said in Romans 5.13, that before the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed, there not being law. With the fulfillment of the Old Testament law in Christ, he is able to be our intercessor, and sin is not imputed to us. Therefore, our righteousness is of God and not of the law. And it sure as hell isn't of ourselves. In that manner, Christ shall destroy the works of the devil which caused the fall of the first place. However, those who love Christ shall seek to establish that higher form of law which was written on our hearts, which Paul explains in Romans chapter 6, and here again later in Romans chapter 7. From Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 5. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. As soon as Israel fills the whole earth. Yahweh, our God, is our creator. He is our husband and he is our redeemer, Yahshua Christ. For that reason, Christ was described as the bridegroom by John the Baptist, as it is recorded in John chapter 3. Then there came a dispute among some of the students of John with the Judeans concerning purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, for whom you testified, look, he immerses or he baptizes. And they all come to him. John replied and said, a man is not able to receive anything if it has not been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear testimony for me that I said that I am not the Christ, but that I am being sent before him. He having the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices in joy because of the voice of the bridegroom. This, therefore, my joy is fulfilled. It is necessary for him to be augmented and for me to be diminished. Christ in his own himself as the husband of Israel, which is described as the city of God. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And I'll skip to verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in a spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me to the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And their light was like under the stone, uh, under a stone most precious, even a jasper stone, stone clear as crystal. Thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Uh, I'm sorry, and had a great wall and high and had 12 gates and the gates 12 angels and the names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Yahweh promising to betroth himself to Israel and the bride being the lamb's wife. The new Jerusalem represents the people themselves 
and Yahweh and Yahshua are indeed one. They are not two. They are one. What is? Said in Hosea that Israel would return to her first husband and that Yahweh would betroth Israel to himself forever. He being Christ, the Lamb's wife being the bride. Any other interpretation of these things which we have presented here tonight is to contend with Scripture rather than to accept it. And all those who seek to contend with Scripture seek to corrupt the Word of God for their own agendas. Yahweh was married to Israel, and Yahweh will remarry Israel at the marriage supper of the Lamb the genetic children of Israel, without a doubt. Those who want to claim that God can't be married to a nation, they're trying to define the language for God. They're contending with Scripture. They're not accepting Scripture. That these clowns, they call themselves um, Christian identity pastors and contend with Scripture, they're not Christian identity pastors. They're just Jews. They're no better than Jews. And these people that troll other Christian talk, talk rooms, other Christian chat rooms, these people that troll other Christian chat rooms and other Christian forums, is that you're not Christians. You prove it by your trolling. You're not Christians. You're Jews. That's all you are. I don't expect my attitude to bring me popularity. And the fools that say that think makes Christian identity look stupid, it's because they are stupid, but they are not Christian identity. Praise Yahweh, the God and the husband of true Israel. I'll be here tomorrow night with the other races, the non-Adamic races and biblical eschatology, part three. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night. Trolls. You're off to the lake of fire.